So in 2006, Satoshi Kanazawa published a paper where he said very attractive parents will tend to give birth to more daughters. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, he went on to say that over time, this should thus result in women becoming more and more attractive compared to men. Uh, he's basing this off of something called the Trivers-Willard hypothesis, and he believes this is a really good example. The Trivers-Willard hypothesis is a hypothesis from evolutionary biology that suggests that female mammals uh, can skew the ratio of boys to girls that are born. Uh, in other words, uh, female mammals can decide that they want to have more boys or more girls as the situation dictates. So how might this work? Well, imagine you're a species of mammal where the males mate a lot. And I mean, a lot. The higher quality males will tend to mate more often than the lower quality males. That's the whole basis of natural selection. And the idea is that the males will be preferred over females in this species as the males will have more opportunities to mate and to be reproductively successful. Ultimately, the males will be more likely to spread their parents' genes, which means more evolutionarily successful. Now, Kanazawa's findings were that very attractive couples in the study uh, had boys as their firstborn 44% of the time. And well, everyone else in the study had boys as their firstborn 52% of the time. Now, that's a 6% difference. It's pretty big, right? I mean, if you think about it, usually the sex ratio of boys to girls born is closer to 51% uh, leaning boys or close to 50%. So statistically, this is like 6%. That's much, much bigger. That's you know jackpot, right? Well, don't bring out the oversized check just yet. There's some problems we need to talk about. So today on Critical Science, we're going to explore whether beautiful parents really do have more boys than girls. But more importantly, we're going to explore why small sample sizes, especially in binary comparisons like boys versus girls. We also see this with things like genotoxicity or cancer studies or toxicity in general. Uh, but we're really, you know, interested in these binary comparisons and whether or not they can yield large differences. And just like in the casino, it appears to be just a matter of luck. Kanazawa obtained uh, the data from uh, the National Longitudinal Study of Adolescent Health. It's a study of adolescents. It first occurred in uh, 1994, 1995, and these people were followed for several years. And in 2001 to 2002, they were interviewed uh, again, and now they had been aged to uh, aged 18 to 28. And of those that they interviewed, uh, 2,972 had become parents. So that's quite a few. But in terms of the hum overall human population, that's actually kind of small. Well, 
these people are rated on their attractiveness. Now that's kind of my first flag when I look at study quality. Yeah, I don't know about you, but my friends and I don't exactly see eye to eye on attractiveness. I'm not sure how the interviewers are going to normalize their own internal scales of attractiveness or if that was even done. Whose touchstone do you use to determine who and what is attractive? And what about the very unattractive category? Yes, they did have one of those. So, I mean, really, the, the, the whole premise of the attractiveness scaling just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. I mean, really, this is kind of like the scholarly journal version of Hot or Not. Really, I mean, ew. Anywho, sorry for that digression. Now, here's the thing. So, Kanazawa did use that data. Yep, he did. And I'm still shaking my head. Can't believe this got published. But it did. And after it got published in a peer-reviewed journal, it got picked up by the press. Yeah, don't get me started. So, here's the deal. Kanazawa did a Pretty typical statistical analysis, right? He, he found that very attractive people were 6% less likely to have a boy as their first child than people who weren't particularly attractive. But keep in mind, he keeps framing this 6%, you know, that they're 6% less likely to have a boy compared to people who weren't very attractive. And that's a minor semantic quibble. Maybe or not in my mind, but, you know, ultimately he concludes that the girls are far more likely uh, to be the firstborn for attractive couples. So, yeah, he finds this statistically significant and he makes a big deal about it. And that's that's where things start to, you know, go off the rails for him. So here's the thing. You know, sex ratios have been studied for a long time and people have been looking at what is what is it that actually impacts sex ratios. And, you know, there's some fairly decent studies on this. And really, most things that people look at, you know, we're talking famine, uh, you know, big, big deals like that typically don't nudge that sex ratio by more than 1%. I mean, you know, I mentioned famine before. Famine nudges at about 3%. So to have something as trivial as attractiveness move at 6%, that's a really, 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 really large effect size that we're talking about here. So... When we see large effect sizes, there's this old adage in statistics. If you have a large difference, then you better have a lot of data to back it up. Otherwise, it's probably not real. And Andrew Gelman uh, coined a, a particular approach called the uh, type M error. And what type M error is, is that's where he's uh, looking at, you know, is is there this really large magnitude of uh, change? And if there is, are we also happening to look at a very small sample size? Because in his observation, and I've seen this as well in toxicology, typically when we see these large effect sizes, when ordinarily we don't see large effect sizes, it's usually because 
there's noise. And what we're looking at is the noise. So like I said, when we look, when we see these large effect sizes, we got a small number of subjects and believe me, 2,900 humans is a very small study. You know, it's very tiny compared to our overall population. Humans do have a ton of inter-individual variability. We have to start asking the question, well, what's going on? So what I did was I did a slightly more appropriate analysis. And I, I took this binomial data and I treated it like binomial data. Kanazawa doesn't do that. What Kanazawa is doing is he's treating the data as if it were what we call continuous. And so he treats it as data that would follow more or less a normal distribution. He's using a t-test type approach. And the problem with that is that approach works when you're dealing with data that go on from negative infinity to positive infinity. But he's not dealing with that kind of data. He's dealing with percentage data, which that data can only go down to 0%. So it's constrained on the left-hand side. It can't go all the way to negative infinity. As a result, he's violating some of the key assumptions of the statistical model that he's using. So we need to use a more appropriate statistical model. And in this case, uh, I end up using uh, what's called a beta binomial distribution. So what the beta binomial distribution does is it models the probabilities of something happening or proportions as well. And Critically, it models the uncertainty around those probabilities given our sample size. So given the information that we have from the study, I plug that into the distribution. I do that for attractive and not attractive. And what happens is we actually see that there's no difference between the proportion of girls born to the very attractive parents versus those whose parents aren't very attractive. In other words, this sex ratio skew is really within the noise. And that's what the beta binomial distribution analysis shows us. So what's happening here? Well, like I said, Kanazawa uh, is using a statistical test that's not appropriate for the data that he's looking at. When you're doing any kind of test in statistics, you have a lot of baggage that comes with it. And that baggage you know, is built into the model. This is no different than, you know, any other kind of mathematical modeling that we do. So the test he's using is treating the uncertainty very differently. It treats the noise very differently because it's making a completely different set of assumptions. And as a result, his conclusions are wrong. And I'm not the first one to say this. Other people have said this. Andrew Gelman uh, is the one who I read who first pointed this out. So what are our take-home messages here? Well, probably the biggest take-home message is that if it seems too good to be true, it probably is. I mean, we hear that all the time, right? Oh, that deal's too good to be true. It probably is, you know, and, and it's the same in science. If you see this huge effect, and especially if the press picks it up, I'm going to be really, really, really skeptical. You know, in applied stats, we like to say the bigger the difference, the more data you need to support it which again is the same thing as saying if it's too good to be true, it probably is. And at least if it's, if you know, you're going to need a lot more subjects or replicates to back up that difference. We know from our experience that small studies, you know, we see this in toxicology, we see this in psychology, sociology, physiology, pharmacology, 
small studies are going to result in some large differences more often than we'd like them to. And again, that's this type M error issue. And, you know, it's important that scientists are analyzing their data properly and they need to make sure that their data, data meet certain requirements of the test that they're using. One of the things that I find a lot in my practice is most scientists that I work with in toxicology and pharmacology and epidemiology aren't necessarily the best trained when it comes to applied statistics. The epidemiologists typically are better trained than the toxicologists, but still, that doesn't make up for the fact that, you know, they're still applying these tests sometimes inappropriately. Now, I will say there are some epidemiologists and other scientists who do a great job applying stats, and they should be rewarded for that somehow. I'm not quite sure how. Maybe I can make a trophy or something for them. I'll present it at a meeting. I don't know. But what I'm seeing in a lot of the peer-reviewed published literature is that we don't see good stats. And again, peer review is letting this stuff get through. There's the peer review system is broken. You know, and really we need to make sure that before we start using scientific data to make any kind of decisions, that we have enough data to back up these decisions and these conclusions that we're using to help us make these decisions. It, it really boils down to the fact that, you know, small studies are going to lead us astray a lot. We think we're seeing signal, but in fact, we're just seeing noise. And maybe the biggest take home message of all really is that very attractive people probably don't have more girls than the rest of us. So, you know, I'm sure that that truth nugget and five cents will buy a cup of coffee somewhere. I'm not sure where. Uh, well, I guess inflation. So let me do the math. So $15 in that truth nugget will definitely buy you a cup of coffee somewhere. Anyway, so again, take home message for today. Small studies, you're probably looking at noise. If it's too good to be true, it probably really is. Anyway, thanks everyone. That's another episode of Critical Science in the Books. I'm Lyle Bragoon. This is Raptor Media. I'll talk to you again another time.